0: Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem. On this second season of the podcast, we are hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, we speak with Jay Giro, founder and CEO of Damon Motorcycles based in Vancouver. Damon is often compared to tesla for its innovative reinvention of an entire category jay found early success as a professional snowboarder and then set out on a personal mission to rid the world of oil he first did this at rev technologies that converted fleet trucks and military vehicles to electric and was a pioneer in vehicle to grid technology he then founded mojo the most successful connected car platform in the world he started Damon after a trip to Southeast Asia, where he got reminded just how important two-wheeled mobility is to a big part of our global population, and yet how dangerous it can be. Here's our conversation with Jay. Jay, thanks very much for your time and being on the show today. Where do we find you?
1: Uh, Vancouver, BC. North Vancouver.
0: Now, as a kid, we'll dive right in. As a kid, you followed your dream and found success as a professional athlete. Uh, tell us a little bit about your early days
1: yeah um, not precisely I, uh, I actually dropped out of high school when I was 17 uh, quite conscientiously because the classroom of other grade 11s at that time much like all the previous years were not the least bit interested in their education and frankly neither was I until grade 11 when I actually started getting good grades but um, the, I realized that, you know, I, at that time I'd already been working two jobs. I worked at the cafeteria at my high school and I had a job at a grocery store and I pretty got, pretty much got sick and tired of the, the laissez-faire attitude of the class in grade 11 when I started to think my grades might actually count for something and I should try harder. Um, somehow that translated to the sensible decision to quit high school and um, my plan was to work full-time because I thought I could do much better with my time in high school, uh, excuse me, in, uh, in a full-time job and actually make real money, and then go to, go to uh, adult night school because I figured adults would be a little more focused. And that was certainly true, and I completed grade 12 through adult night school, but coming home with that news to my mom didn't quite make sense to her, so she threw me out. Uh, and from 17 to 20, therefore, I had to f- depend a lot more on full-time work and found my way into managing two coffee shops by the age of 19. Uh, And I got so into the business of it, selling franchises at 19 years old and and running wholesale coffee sales to, um, um, you know, minute loops around the neighborhood and whatnot. We were roasters, coffee roasters. Uh, I had forgotten completely that I actually had a dream to become a professional snowboarder. And when, when that moment dawned on me, I can actually remember the exact time, place and the view that was in front of me of the local ski hill covered in snow. Um, I realized I had to quit what I was doing, that I had lots of time in the future for business. So I I quit everything and I moved to Whistler, BC at the age of 20. So my my plan was to do so at 18. Anyway, so yeah, it took a a few years of of getting lost in the weeds of of very young business life before realizing uh, I needed to get back on track.
0: Well, if this whole business thing doesn't work out, I think there's there's the of a great movie. You can make it a, maybe a maybe a rom-com. <laughs> so, the great failures
1: of Jay Drew, sure. <laughs> that,
0: that's a that's a it's a great story. But uh, tell us a little bit about. I mean, it's fascinating. Uh, I think uh, lots of us uh, snowboarded, skied, and what have you, as kids. Um, but uh, very few get to the level that you got to. Uh, how did that happen?
1: A little bit of good talking. I'll be honest and uh and some serendipitous you know this was the day of the of the uh what's it called the non-digital cameras like we didn't have iPhones in our pockets where we could take video one moment and watch our run on this on the chairlift the next moment which would have been exceptional for feedback and you know Uh, iterating on on your your tricks and whatnot so you had to find a photographer who wanted to burn up rolls of film like 5, 10, 20 rolls of film a day to take pictures of you then you had to chase that photographer down to get those pictures who he paid for the development of and he was just a kid too and then you had to put those photos together in some impressive you know album and then you had to put the album in the mail and send it to a to a to a uh, you know the team manager at K2 Snowboards or at Spy Eyewear or whoever, and and hope that they even opened your mail, and then you had to find their email address and if they used email, this was like 1996 and 97, and try to get a hold of these people somehow, and the only other way to do it was to show up at ski and snowboard events and break through the 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 invitation only line and try to figure out who the team managers of the snowboard companies were to get in front of people to get sponsored. So it was it was a lot of hustling actually. It was way more hustling back then to try to find a sponsor who would help give you a snowboard or a discount on a snowboard if you were lucky um so i don't really know exactly how it happened but it was a combination of good snowboarding you know savvy self-marketing which i didn't do enough of uh and follow up like you really had to run a business and follow up with people to get attention um others seem to just go to nightclubs with all the right people and get incredibly wasted and make friends and go snowboarding with the right guy the next day. And that was it. Um, I didn't have that kind of luck because I couldn't hold my liquor very well.
0: <laughs> so I think what you just described is we can easily swap out for any new entrepreneur, young entrepreneur coming to Silicon Valley and trying to break in into the inner circle here.
1: Yeah, very similar.
0: Yeah. So over time, I mean, you, you developed, uh, you, you had a obviously a strong work ethic to become a pro athlete and get to the level you did. Despite everything you just described, and uh, no doubt you developed some principles um, about how you know, and you were lucky to do this very early on, so that you've taken this into your career. Talk a little bit about kind of your your principles and and what you've taken from that discipline to business.
1: You know, I've actually never thought stopped to draw a line between my my I guess my business values, if you will, and my snowboard values, but I guess they're they're pretty similar. Um, drawing a blank, you know. It's also cliche, but if you, don't, if you don't live your word and you don't live your commitments day in and day out and, and take, the, take the lickings, take the beatings. In snowboarding, it was quite literal. You know, literally take the beatings if you don't land on your feet. You know, we go through a snowboard park with 15 jumps and you would do that run 10 times in a day. So you're doing 150 jumps minimum a day, every day. Uh, and they're like 40 feet, 60 feet, 80 feet across, plus your takeoff and landing, you're talking about 100 feet of travel in the air. Um, so the, the beatings were real. Uh, and if you wanted to quit, you just, it was really, really easy to quit. There's the the bar down at the bottom of the mountain or an excuse like you gotta work that night or, or you're sore today, cause you were doing it for six days in a row this week. And you know, that's just not what it takes. That's not what's gonna get you there. So. I think it was just a matter of maybe more than anything that I've learned from life whether it was dropping out of high school and still finishing or, or landing those accounts selling coffee or, or, or landing those tricks on the days when you're in pain. Um, it's just perseverance and grit. I'll put that above absolutely anything else. I used to say attitude is everything. I actually think attitude is second to person. You could have a really shitty attitude and still make it if you really want to drag yourself through hell and, and keep going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's this there's bad advice called follow your passion and then there's good advice is do what you're good at and uh, successful at. So now, um, so let's switch gears a little bit into, into the topic at hand here. You got into EVs before it was cool. Uh, How did you get started? How did you shift from professional snowboarder selling franchises uh, and getting into mobility and EVs?
1: Yeah, well, that's actually a really big gap there. There's a 11 year gap there between selling coffee shop franchises at 18 and starting Rev Technologies at 29. Uh, And in that gap, there were action sports promotions companies that I founded. There was a women's snowboard clothing company that I co-founded. There was um, working 20 or 30 different restaurants, landscaping jobs. Uh, You know, tons and tons of side hustles, bars, working at a bar, all that kind of thing. Um, And actually, it was was a moment in 2002 or 2003 when I was nursing a back injury. Uh, I was working at a bar at the base of Whistler, and I watched the bombing of Baghdad take place, uh, the Iraq War. And... I mean, I just couldn't believe that the, all of the news channels could advertise this was about freedom and not about the control of oil. Um, and so I spent the next five years really thinking long and hard about how does someone like me with no real you know, physics or engineering education have the greatest single impact on on the dependence of oil in the world. Cuz if I thought I thought that if we could take the impetus out of oil, we could take the impetus out of war. Now, in the back of my mind I know oh, we'll find something else to fight about, like lithium or something, right? But um, uh, really like let's get the take the impetus out of oil. Let's solve that. And if that was what I gave the rest of my life to, I'd die happy. Even if I was a failure, but you know, was part of the contribution over the next 50 60 years of my life. And I thought, okay, well that I could be happy about the rest of my life then. Of course that became about the scariest thing I ever thought of. And I spent five years hiding out from it until migraine headaches while selling motorcycles and cars was so intense. I knew I was avoiding something that I had to do in life. And so I quit that job on December 15th telling the general manager, the most crusty guy with big gold rings who'd been selling cars for 60, 70 years, uh, that I was gonna quit to start an electric car company, sitting at a car dealership, no less. And he, I, I was so fucking afraid because I had a kid coming and I couldn't pay rent on January 1st, literally I had nothing. And I sure as hell didn't have Christmas gifts for my family that year. And I was quitting my job to start an electric car company, and I didn't know anything about anything about electric cars, really. And I was telling him my my reason for it, and he had the most uh, stunned look on his face, but it was the opposite of what I thought. He said, you know what, I've been thinking about that for 20 years, and I wish I'd done it. And 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 I truly thought I was crazy, and he didn't think I was crazy. He thought I was doing something he didn't have the balls to do. It was it was a, a amazing moment. It's just a huge personal shift. So then for the next five months, I figured out you know. A little bit about what i wanted to do which at the time was to sell electric cars of the other companies in 2008 rev there was a, there was a tesla barely there was a company called think there was azure dynamics making fleet electric pickups from in vancouver here there was a handful of companies none of whom had a single product that they were ready to sell to me to ship into canada so i realized if i was going to be my word and that was to put a electric car on the road in 2008 come hell or high water uh, that was my commitment to myself. I, I came to this conclusion a few months later, I'd have to do it myself. So that was that, you know, buy a pickup truck, start talking to people about it, start internet, internet uh, networking with the local community. Um, I put out a, a press release on Canada Day 2008 that we would be the first electric car show in Canada. People started walking in the front door, gas prices were through the roof, the, all the car companies were going bankrupt. It was kind of a perfect storm. Um, not to raise capital, but at least to draw media attention. And engineers started walking to the front door saying they wanted to help me. Now, if they, were, if they were building engineers or bridge, you know, civil engineers, I would have hired them because I didn't know there were different kinds of engineers. We're talking at extraordinary levels of naivety and ignorance. Um, but, you know, when I look at how, in, how incredibly unlikely all of this was, the only answer I have for you is perseverance and grit. And what that looks like in day-to-day practice as a person is putting one foot in front of the other. It's, it's the literal action of getting up every morning and doing something towards your goal. And you're really floundering all over the place. You don't know exactly if what you're doing is the right things, but you think they're the right things. And like even Bill Gates said, about half of everything he did was a mistake. And you, know, you can make a ton of mistakes, but, you, but if you just keep moving forward a little, tiny little bit, it adds up. It adds up exponentially over the course of a year. So that's, uh, that's a little bit about the messiness of starting ref.
0: I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss and for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking, get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's golom dot slash pitching for more information. See you there. So you you built uh, vehicles you sold to even the U.S. government uh, with Rev, uh, but at some po- certain point you transitioned to Mojo. So talk a little bit about kind of how you pivoted, what happened with Rev, and what was next.
1: Yeah, so Rev was making electric SUVs and pickups. We designed a, a 100% electric modular drive system that replaced the gas driveline of a, of a Ford Escape or Ford F-150. We got a lot of attention of uh, Ford, but they were not ready to go all in. They wanted hybrids and we were pure electric. And um, we built our own drive system and electronics and software, we built a cloud computing engine that could connect remotely to every vehicle on the grid. We had vehicles in Hawaii, we had vehicles in Detroit, we had vehicles with the Pentagon, uh, we had vehicles with Chrysler, we had vehicles all over Canada, uh, and we could see the total energy. And the total emptiness, which would be called capacity, of these these batteries on all these electric vehicles in aggregate. So they, they appeared on our software network as one single source of energy that could be dispatched in the local region of the network they were, of the power grid that they were plugged into when they were plugged in, which is about 98% of the useful life of a car and uh so that had tremendous uh interest to the government because we could feed energy back into the grid with the hardware we built on it and that could run you could run a military base off your electric cars for example so you can imagine the kind of energy security and independence that provides to a military microgrid Um, And then after five years of doing that, you know, hand to mouth government contracts that were lucrative, but not lucrative enough, uh, natural gas prices wiped out our focus on fleets. So natural gas prices fell 15x, there was no sign of any recovery there. And the fleet customers were really going to go back to converting their trucks to natural gas instead of electric. So I thought about for months about all the other things we could be doing with the connected vehicle that, that we had on our network and, and the use cases the list was really long like well over 100 use cases that were valuable and i thought the only way to serve all those use cases is one would have to build an open network with with connected vehicle software tools that app developers could leverage to build apps for your platform and you know that's a pretty good idea and so that led to mojo so mojo is this little guy here connects to your OBD port of any car under the sun and turns any car into a smart car. So I pivoted, I founded Mojo, and uh, raised a bunch of money for it and uh, uh, Mojo became what is now one of the fastest growing connected car platforms for consumers in the world. It's distributed in, in nine countries uh, through wireless carrier partnerships. So our, our carrier partners Talus, Rogers, Bell, T-Mobile, MetroPCS, Deutsche Telekom uh, all distribute this guy as an add-on to your cell phone plan. So we took away the, the payment friction of that. To buy the device uh, and you get to you turn any car into a smart car.
0: Now, uh, consumers can buy the device still and they can subscribe to it, but really, from what you told me in the past, is that selling the data is, is the real play there. And a lot of startups, a lot of startup pitches, they're talking about selling data. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of this, this business model and, and why the data and the vehicles is so important. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think, you know, whether it's Kickstarter or Crowd, whatever it is, uh, Indiegogo or, or so many product-centric platforms these days and so many product-centric entrepreneurs with their product ideas, and they're missing something. They're all missing something. If you're in the business of selling a thing to sell a thing to sell a thing, just go sell that idea to Procter Gamble. You can't make a go of just selling stuff. You have to have, you know, it's kind of a two-sided platform. So on the one hand, this provides value to the end consumer because it connects their car to the internet. They can track their teenage son or daughter who's recklessly driving their car on weekends. They can, you know, automate their fuel reporting and they automate their their, uh, their diagnostic information of their engine life and all that good stuff. But there's also another benefit to the company and the shareholder which drives the valuation because selling this one at a time is not going to drive a valuation. And that's the data. Never has there been a platform that was able to collect the sensor data and the engine data and the behavioral data of millions of different types of cars across 30 years, across 7,000 makes and models in, in nine countries. You know, the breadth and the depth of data there is a- astonishing. We're talking petabytes of data that Mojo has collected and can then glean and discern new insights into human driver behavior into uh, insurance use cases, into finance use cases, into uh, smart traffic infrastructure interfacing, into uh, drink needs at the gas pump uh, and so on and so on and so on. So Mojo, you know, we thought about the hundreds and hundreds of things that you could do with the data if you could have it all. Um, it's aggregated. It's anonymous. it has We have no interest whatsoever what the customer is doing with that data. Um, and then, you know, it's great to figure out all these great use cases, but man, selling it is another thing. It's, it's really tough. What's it worth? You know, what's the hurdle rate of that, of that, of that insight to uh, Exxon or to Allstate insurance? Um, and that just takes a whole lot of business development, and a lot of discussions, and a lot of time.
0: Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating, um, I think we talked about this once, once before, is just gathering kind of the live weather data that's on the roads uh, from devices like this and selling that. I mean, that kind of illustrates it very quickly.
1: Yeah, it's good, yeah. I mean, uh, windshield wiper speed times you know 10,000 cars on the 101 between San Jose and San Francisco uh, will give you micro weather information that weather stations can't deliver you know it drives me nuts every time I open my weather app it tells me the weather in South Vancouver that's 14 miles away we have 14 uh, 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 micro uh, micro weather patterns in the North Shore alone you know so it's sunny in Richmond all the time and it's never in sunny never sunny in North Van so it's useless information I need weather related to where I am now.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. So, um, I want to get to your uh, magnum opus, your uh, daemon, Everything you learned in, in your career, you know, as an as a athlete, as a young hustler, and then into into the tech business for a number of years. Um, you've uh, already successfully launched. I can say that, that something arguably that's more difficult than launching a new auto brand, a new motorcycle brand. So you have a very interesting story of what, how you got to uh, Damon as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create it?
1: Sure. Yeah, you know, um, I've, had, I've heard that quite a few times in the, like, the last two months that everybody thinks building an electric motorcycle company would be harder than building an electric car company. Um, God, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I don't know. They're built an electric car company. Well, not really. So Damon is the future of motorcycling and and it's it's really easy to to kind of be like what um and and actually bigger than that we're the future of light evs and a light ev is a vehicle that's bigger than a e-bike or a scooter but smaller than a car and goes on the highway and that represents about 75 of trips in the world um, just under half of all miles traveled worldwide are on two wheels and that is just not obvious to the public uh and that you know for over a hundred and over a hundred mega cities of greater than 10 million citizens the motorcycle is is literally the only way to get around people don't ride a bicycle between two stores they don't walk on a sidewalk because it's full of motorbikes i kid you not uh, and and there's no you know subways and buses that it can make it through the the throng of of motorcyclists congesting the, the traffic network uh and so the motorcycle is the only way to really travel for the for the whole world and yet, if you look at the, uh, the the state of the motorcycle industry, it's a solid 20, 30 years behind the car in terms of technology, safety, you know, zero emissions, etc. And so there's a huge gap here. It's this massive overlooked segment of transportation that is the largest and will always be the largest for at least the next 50 years, because the cost of, of, of motorization on a motorcycle is a fraction of a car. And, you know, worldwide, one-fifth of the world is motorized. This is exactly like how A quarter century ago, one fifth of the world had access to a cell phone. And now that four fifths of the world have access to a cell phone, you could say the world has access to information, unlimited information on the internet. Um, So then the other four fifths of the world is going to motorize over over the next 20, 25 years. And there's no question as to how. It's not going to be a bicycle and it's not going to be a car. Right? It's, this, it's this segment of that if they were all electric, Damon would call light EVs. So we have to look at what the future of motorization is necessarily going to be based on the past and work our way backwards to today to define a technology and a product that's gonna get the world to where it needs to be. The world needs to have vehicles as safe as cars. Every single person on earth needs a vehicle as safe as a car but in most of the world we need a much higher freedom of mobility that only a motorcycle can provide, especially because of that congestion. So if you look at you know, Jakarta or, or Mexico city you're talking about, or Bogota, you're talking about congestion levels, um, people per square mile, that's 10 to 20 times higher than Manhattan. And Manhattan is the highest congestion in the world. So, you know, I looked at all of that over the last, um, well, it was the year 2016 after I traveled to Jakarta, I went out there for my best friend's wedding for nine days and found myself unexpectedly riding a motorcycle for those nine days, you know, behaving like everybody else out there, 22 million other motorcyclists. And, uh, and it was really eye-opening. But it wasn't until I nearly drowned in the ocean, that trip, that I started thinking very differently about those 22 million people. I had a seven hour ride back from one side of the island of Java to the other, reflecting on the fact that I had to yell out for my best friend to, to swim 200 feet down a riptide to fish me out of the water. He very easily could have drowned with me. Thank God he happened to be a lifeguard in his younger years. Um, and so he knew how to fish me out. He's also a surfer, so he didn't ride, he didn't surf, uh, swim up the riptide. He came in and out of it at an angle, which I knew nothing about. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so the next, the next day for seven hours, you know, on a motorcycle riding from one side of the Island of Java to the other really gave me time to reflect on my life. You know, it was, it was definitely a, you know, a slap in the face. Uh, and I thought this is really, um, a gross mistreatment of the public by the manufacturers of Honda, Yamaha, whoever, that they are not doing anything about the safety of their customers. It's unbelievable.
0: When companies start to catch fire and blitz scale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At DrakeStar Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. DrakeStar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across US and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at (laughs) drakestar.com. So you focused on safety and um, for those who don't know much about Damon, let's talk first about the, kind of the safety aspects and and I guess that's part of the brand, uh, you know, the, the very thoughtful brand. Any outside observer can see that uh, Damon's brand is very well curated and the image you want to create and safety is at the core of it. Um, talk a little bit about how you kind of made that real, that safety aspect. Well.
1: Uh... I came back from Jakarta and spent many months doing all forms of kind of research around, you know, the problems of motorcycling and the and the statistics and the, the, the cost of GDPs to the countries for motorcycle injuries and so on and so on. And it eventually, I eventually concluded on, and this may seem really obvious, collision warning systems. Um, but where I came away from was in 10 years, motorcycles need to be semi-autonomous. And let me define that. We're not talking about My ability to put my feet up on the handlebars and lean back and have the thing coast down the street for me nobody wants that and uh, But we are talking about a vehicle that has the ability to avoid an accident if I don't so if I don't take the right evasive action in time, the motorcycle will for me, whether that's braking or leaning or steering. Um, and the, you know, the fact that we only have two or sometimes three wheels really changes the whole thing. It is nothing like a collision avoidance system on a, on a car or a collision warning system on a car because of the fact that the, the vehicle has to balance and lean. Uh, and that changes algorithms, that changes placement of sensors, the types of sensors you need, that changes the kind of drive-by-wire steering and braking we're going to eventually need to move into collision avoidance and, and so on and so on Uh, and as i work my way backwards from a semi-autonomous vehicle to today what's the mvp of that it's blind spot detection it's forward collision warning it's a rear view monitor that shows you everything behind you at all times that eliminates what people don't know are, are substantial blind spots on a motorbike and those are contributed by terrible mirrors that vibrate and show you your elbows uh, on all motorcycles and a truncated field of view on a helmet and, and no rear view mirror of any kind that you're used to having in a car uh, and if, and you know the fact that you don't have a cage so we really need to have this invisible force field this bubble this safety zone that that gets larger with the with the you know preeminent warnings of a collision warning system.
0: And um, when you built uh, when you designed Damon obviously it was going to be an electric um, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's fascinating, um, and, and you really identify this, that, for example, Tesla uh, had to build not just the best electric car, but uh, arguably best car on several different uh, dimensions for consumers to go for, it, and certainly for mainstream. Uh, talk about that kind of in parallel with motorcycles, where your focus is.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, maybe not a lot, but there's a handful of other electric car companies out there, excuse me, electric motorcycle companies out there and they vary in performance and style and whatnot, but they're really replicas of the last 20th century. They use a, a, a traditional frame, they, they they try to find space for battery within that frame, they try to find space for an electric car motor within that frame and, and everything is oversized and you're stacking compromise on top of compromise and you get this compounding effect of, of, a, of an inferior vehicle. So the electric motorcycles of today are inferior to the gas motorcycles. Now any intermediate motorcycle rider who has enough money to buy a good motorbike doesn't want to compromise from their gas motorcycle to an electric one just to do the right thing. There's not not enough benefit there. And and that's what Tesla understood. Tesla understood that the car has to be better in every single way. And if 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 a Damon electric motorcycle can't be better in every single way, then we're going to be selling into a tiny niche, which is like a fraction of a fraction of the electric motor of the of the motorcycle market and the motorcycle market is twice the size of cars per units every year Uh, and that's a a big market but the the fraction of a fraction is not worth getting out of bed for so we had to really think about the complete re-engineering of a motorcycle from scratch to be the best electric motorcycle we can if you look at tesla they didn't make a, a, a Model 3 to compete with the Mercedes-Benz C-Class or the BMW 3. They made the best possible mid-priced sedan they could, having nothing to do with what any other car company made. The result of their sales is they're outselling all other mid-sized sedans combined times, plus 29%. That's extraordinary. They didn't take market share from BMW or from Mercedes. They took market share from the entire segment and everything below it, uh, and that comes from a total reinvention. You know, the trade-off of that is you have to invest an extraordinary amount of money uh, to build better technology from end to end. And, and Damon is doing exactly that. So, talk about
0: some of the specs on the on the Damon. I think for the motorcycle uh, riders, this is uh, pretty exciting. Guys like me and you.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's easy to remember. It's 200 miles per hour, 200 miles of range, and 200 horsepower. And You know, it's cute but it's also 200 newton meters of torque. It's actually 235 newton meters of torque. But we round all the numbers to 200 because it sounds good and it's easy to remember. So, you know, you're talking about a vehicle that, that, that outperforms the Ducati V4, the, the Honda CBR1000, the, uh, the Yamaha R1, it's, it's a better motorcycle in every way, shape, and form, and it'll protect you from an accident and notify you of a threat, and you can see everything behind you, and it transforms at the push of a button from a commuter position to a super sport riding position while you ride.
0: Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Uh, I'm very excited to get mine as soon as possible here. Yeah, totally. When when can, uh, you know, you started taking pre-orders and the, the company announced back at CES in 2020, it took best in show and a dozen or more of other awards and has really kind of catapulted. Um, what's the timeline? I mean, with, with vehicles, a lot of times, uh, between the time when the vehicle is announced and when it actually starts shipping, like a Porsche Taycan famously took almost five years. Um, what's the timeline and, and where's Damon these days?
1: Yeah, well, thankfully, we're not going to take almost five years, but um, uh, we plan to ship in the back half of next year. We have an order book that has been growing uh, exponentially month over month. It's, it's literally grown from a million and a half in orders a month. Uh, last year to May was $2.9 million in pre-orders, so we're well over $29 million in, in, in projected revenue, uh, almost 1,200 units ordered for just a sport bike, not just a sport bike. Just the super sport category, which is arguably the smallest category of the, of the sport bike, in, and we have over 1,100 pre-orders. So people putting an order in today, really, you know, they're not getting their bike till 2023, unfortunately. And, and that's just the size of the backlog that we have today.
0: It's a pretty fantastic uh, problem to have for any startup. Now, um, this, doesn't, this didn't come without uh, major challenges. So let's say, let's put aside the typical challenge that every startup has, which is raising money. Uh, what has been the, the second biggest challenge uh, for Damon uh, throughout its not that long lifetime so far?
1: I'm sure we have our biggest challenges ahead of us still. Like I'm, I'm going to put no small emphasis on the importance of manufacturing and quality manufacturing and, and quality control and, and warranty and all that kind of stuff. We are exceptionally focused on design for manufacturing from every stage of the prototype. We DFM everything. Um, And and I I just, I know that it's gonna be tough. No matter, you know, our team has over 200 years experience designing, developing, and shipping all manners of electric vehicles. We've manufactured everything under the sun that rolls on on wheels, including VTOLs, you know, bikes, cars, trucks, buses, uh, and VTOLs. Uh, And and that said, it's never fun. Manufacturing is hard. Um, So I think our biggest challenges are still in front of us, Uh, but all of our challenges have been around financing. And you know, I've been raising money every single month for the last thirteen years. But the but it's it's the effects of the challenges of financing. You know, COVID was super hard for Damon. We raised only three million total in 2020. We raised 30 million in the first month of 2021. Uh, 10x in a month as soon as you know the the feeling that COVID was out of the way and the politics in the U.S. had changed and the investors are, you know were coming back in droves. Um, but, you know, what, what, what happens when you aren't raising money fast enough is you're not hiring fast enough, you're not building fast enough, you're not prototyping fast enough, you're not marketing enough. Uh, and, you know, the, it becomes a, this massive effort of standing in the middle of a room and trying to hang on desperately to the four walls. You know, you try grabbing a wall, it's nearly impossible. You can't grab a wall, but it's, that's what it feels like. You're trying to hang onto the four walls to keep the building together. Um, and I'm, I'm really speaking about the, the motivation, the continual motivation and excitement of your team under such times of duress, which can last months and months. And for Damon, we went through these kinds of times, five times between 2017 and the end of 2020. Uh, where we were literally running on fumes, um, and you know, cutting salaries back and laying off contractors and and canceling projects—it's super hard. And you know, if someone had unlimited access to money, the time it would take to get from A to A to a product out the door is uh, literally half the time.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, from the outside, you know, it it's always uh, it always looks like a success overnight, but it's many years and <laughs> sleepless nights. <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: You need an extraordinarily naive amount of confidence that you're just gonna make it, and that even while you worry at night and while you think it's um, it's gonna be impossible, and, and this, maybe this time it really is the end. You know, you have to just tell yourself, no, it's not, and get up and make that one small step in front of the other.
0: Us entrepreneurs are irrational, right? So we, we have to, uh, with, with facts staring us in the face, we have to uh, be religious level faith in, in ourselves and our team and, and uh, the decisions we make now exactly yeah now speaking of religious level faith um do you think we'll ever have that autonomous motorcycle
1: i hope not (laughs) (laughs) um okay so we have a vision for a vehicle that is not not much wider than your shoulders the same as a motorcycle that's really important because for most of the world you really cannot take up more space than than yourself on a road or you will be at a massive traffic disadvantage you get pushed back by the waves of motorcycles so you have to be on a vehicle that's no wider than yourself, um, but it needs to be convertible, uh, and it needs to lean because it ha- if it doesn't lean, it's not, it's not something you ride, uh, and it gives you that high freedom of mobility. It needs to avoid an accident for you, uh, but it can't. But it's not a car. So it's like a riddle. What's what is that? Um, and I'll leave you guys with that. We have a pretty clear idea of what that is, um, but it is a vehicle form factor. That's not a motorcycle, it's not a car, not in the traditional sense of either. Now, but it's taking the best of both. And it's low cost, it's on a subscription plan, you can ride it per hour or you can, or you can lease it per year, um, and, and, and it's as uh, it's safe as a vehicle, as safe as a car. And that's really where we're going with this. Um, is it semi-autonomous? when it absolutely needs to be to keep you from being injured or killed. And that's it.
0: Yeah, we ride motorcycles for fun. Other parts of the world uh, depend on on this as transportation and uh, something in between will be quite interesting.
1: They do ride them for utility purposes like a car, but they actually get emotionally excited about them like a motorcycle. And, um, you know, if you go to stand in a traffic intersection, you know, at the corner of a traffic intersection of a big, big road in Jakarta, uh, one of the largest cities in the world and they're all wearing helmets, they're all wearing leather or, or, or you know, armor jackets, even though it's 30 Celsius, it is, it is, uh, and if you unzip their jacket, three out of 10 of them are wearing some form of a motorcycle branded shirt underneath. They live and breathe MotoGP. They live and breathe the culture of motorcycling. Yes, they ride a motorcycle five days a week to get to work. And then I kid you not, they go on weekend rides with hundreds of others who share similar interests in the the type of bike that they own. So it is a a really interesting blend of I ride a motorcycle the way we ride a car, but on weekends, I ride a motorcycle the way we ride a motorcycle. It's pretty cool.
0: It's a sense of identity is very, very strong there. I think uh, what you're just talking about.
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: Now, Last question, and I think it's super relevant, especially for you, is, um, you know, knowing what you know now, um, what advice would you give your teenage self? You now have two sons that are almost the age where you got started, you know, in your adult adult life. Yeah. <laughs> what advice w- do you give them? Would you give them, knowing what you know
1: now? Uh, you know, with my, my, my older son is 12. He's almost 13. And up until, like, last month, for the last five years, he's been absolutely committed that he's going to go to Mars and all he wants to do is be an astronaut and you know so I'm constantly giving him advice about stay in school study hard you know all that typical stuff but the really big thing is like I say to him I don't want you to go to space but I want you to do whatever it is you need to do to be happy first and foremost if you're not happy nothing matters if you're not happy you won't stick with it you won't find the grit and the perseverance you won't find the dedication you won't get through the hard times Are you gonna be happy all the time? Never, no one's happy all the time. But if you're happy most of the time, you're probably on your way and you're in the right direction. Um, And people struggle really hard with all the inner voices in their head, you know? Uh, And and those voices are not your own. They're the voices of society, and they're the voices of your parents, and they're the voices of conditioning. And you just, the biggest thing is to learn to build the mental barrier to those voices and to move forward to the thing that you think you need to do, no matter how ridiculous or stupid it sounds. Because every super good idea sounded ridiculous at the beginning. Um, You know, I think Albert Einstein said, um, at first, your idea will be ridiculed. And then it will be violently opposed. And then it will be uh, received as self-evident, you know, for the greatest, craziest ideas, whether that was atomic, atomic, you know, nuclear fission, or that's, uh, you know, Elon Musk saying, I'm gonna build a rocket and getting laughed at out of, out of the bar by Russians, you know, when he threw in his own 20 million and he was looked at as a banker from PayPal, you know, whatever it is, it's, uh, it goes through that process. And you're gonna, you know, scare people away but if it's what makes you happy you just have to do it
0: that's a it's a great uh, way to uh, end this episode jay so thank you very much uh, for taking the time i think your insights and your 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 story, uh, your personal story building these companies. And then what you're doing with Damon is very exciting and, and informative and, and inspiring. So thanks again for making the time. Um, we are all behind you, uh, with a future safe and more exciting motorcycles. Uh, I am especially excited as you know, so thanks again for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much. And if you guys want to learn more, go to Damon.com. It's spelled like Matt Damon. We'll leave you right there. <laughs> thanks everybody.
0: That was our conversation with Jay Giroux, founder and CEO of Damon Motorcycles. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us five stars in your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. See you on the next one. And in the meantime, you can always find me at golem.net.